past year, we've all had to reimagine our lives, searching for new sources of inspiration and new ways to connect. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hello. I'm Yana Peel, Global Head of Arts and Culture at Chanel, and this is Chanel Connects. Bringing together creative game changers from film, art, dance, music, and fashion in conversation from their homes and studios. I'm in the north of Scotland. I'm in my spare room. It's a very quiet area. Horrific shade of yellow. Still in New York City. Some are old friends and collaborators. Others are meeting for the first time. All are focused on what matters most and what happens next. And now we get to listen in. In this episode, The Lure of the Risky Choice. Eliza Hitman's drama Never Rarely, Sometimes Always and Garrett Bradley's documentary Time both came out in 2020 to huge critical acclaim during a time of great upheaval in the film world. The two innovative directors connect in a conversation led by Rajendra Roy, the chief film curator at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Could you tell where my head was at when you found me? I have two amazing guests, Eliza Hittman and Garrett Bradley, both filmmakers really working in the bone marrow of what it is that it means to be a visual artist, uh, an artist working with the motion picture, and an artist dealing with topics that are probably the most relevant you could possibly imagine for our times. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having us. <laughs> hello, hello. I am sitting actually in my office in Midtown Manhattan at MoMA. So that's where I am. So I'd like to know where you both are. Um, maybe Garrett, you want to start? Yeah, I'm um, I'm sitting at a table in a house um, that is not mine. <laughs> <laughs> that's been my life for the past, um, well, since March, really, just kind of jumping around the country and I'm looking out at this beautiful view of trees and sunshine and airplanes. And I think, uh, yeah, it's funny, like you're describing where you're at also just emotionally, I guess. Um, so much of this year has been, I think, an unpeeling and unlayering of things that have always been there, you know, of things that have always existed. And I think this question of transparency and visibility and erasure and it's a part of our life now in the most kind of literal way with zoom, right? Yeah, <laughs> with true. my resistance to zoom and, and embracing of zoom and, uh, and in, I think the issues that both Eliza and I both are certainly grappling with in our own work in different ways too. Eliza, how about you? I am sitting in my living room in Brooklyn. Uh, I live in a, a little neighborhood called Kensington. And um, I think I, I've really been here to work at this exact seat in this exact space with this exact backdrop, um, which are these beautiful paintings that my grandmother made in the 70s. And, uh, you know, I'm looking out the window and it's a very kind of dreary, cold day in New York. And it feels like, you know, the start of winter. It's a turning point in our country politically. 
it's a turning point in the calendar. And I think I can feel that, you know, today pretty significantly. I've been, you know, busy through the pandemic. So in that respect, I feel lucky between being in a professor at Pratt Institute and promoting my film, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, and doing a lot of, as I'm sure Garrett has also been doing, like advocacy work in different realms that pertains to the film. That's really, that's really me. And then, you know, I shut off and I run around and chase my child and try and make <laughs> the spaces outside of Zoom as warm and as fun as possible because that's what it you know you kind of also try to to balance when you're you know working at home with the family absolutely i mentioned initially that you both premiered your most recent films at sundance in 2020 did you happen to meet there no i feel like eliza when did we because i remember we had an amazing time in miami a few years ago and stayed <laughs> at a really cool hotel do you remember that hotel Ooh, do tell we did a, a sundance shorts lab in miami for a weekend with mike plant who invited us both there and we met with um, a lot of filmmakers from miami from florida well i remember so eliza we met, I think it was as part of New Directors, New Films, where your film Beach Rats, your previous film, was the centerpiece. And we got to work together a couple of times there, which was really inspiring, really amazing, and, and actually a lot of fun. And I feel like following you and your family on social media has been a highlight since then. Yeah, I and recently hopefully- made my Instagram public because I felt like so many people wanted to engage with the movie, but not through the account that Focus Features was managing. So, yeah, now I feel even more self-conscious about the whole thing, but <laughs> I will I will try my best to keep it personal and just me navigating, you know, the high and low moments of the day. I want to move on to your most recent projects, Time, in the case of Garrett and Never Rarely, Sometimes Always with Eliza. They are are very different in most outward ways, I would suppose, but they are films about women trying to navigate systems that are generally failing them. If you could just briefly describe your movies for those who may not yet have seen them, although they should be easily available and streamable in most locations. Yeah, my film is called Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, uh, and it's about a 17-year-old young woman in rural Pennsylvania who is confronted with an unwanted pregnancy. We don't know much about that pregnancy, but we know that she would like to have an abortion. But because of the state laws, uh, she doesn't really have any options that are local to her. So she hops on a Greyhound bus with her cousin and they spend 48 hours navigating New York City, a place they've never been trying to get an abortion. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of overlap with Garrett's beautiful film, you know, the way that systems fail women and have always failed, you know, failed people. And my film, I think of as kind of being a bureaucratic odyssey in ways, a poetic odyssey, a travel odyssey. Mm. Yeah, a uh, uh, bureaucratic odyssey. I am going to add that to my repertoire. I know, that's beautiful. 
Yeah, I gosh, now I just I truly am like it's an odyssey. It's it's yeah. an odyssey. <laughs> but it is. I mean, so I mean time it's a love story. Time is a love story. It's about an entire family led by one woman, Fox Rich, who committed a crime with her husband in the early 90s. And really we journey with her as she spends the next 21 years of her life and her family's life trying to reunite their family. And her husband, Robert, is given a 60-year sentence, a numerical life sentence, and is at Angola State Prison, which is one of the largest prisons in the world, which encompasses about... So it was actually... Angola was um, made up of it's several different plantations that were consolidated into one plantation that were then named after the people who were enslaved and brought from the country of Angola and then turned into a prison. It's about 18,000 acres of land. So that's where Robert is throughout the duration of the film. But I think if you were to ask Fox or to ask the family, what is this film about? I think that they would say this is the story of 2.3 million American families, if not double, triple that number. If you think about those who are serving time on the outside, so it's really a testament to, again, going back to this question of invisibility, you, we, we don't really have any visibility or optics around the prison crisis that's happening in our country. And in many, many cases, the family and love and the ability to stay united is the only witness that we have to the issue. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about getting these films out, especially Eliza in a certain way, because... As far as I can remember, do I have the timing right that mid-March you were hitting screens in the U.S. and at the same time screens were shutting down? Yeah, my film was scheduled to open in New York on the weekend that New York shut down. But because in the moment we're living through you know, a global health crisis, there also was you know, an intensified crisis around women's, people's access to abortion. You know, we had an administration that deemed abortion non-essential. And so the environment in the world we're living in became simultaneously more restrictive. So, I, you know, it's a film that I think spoke to people during the pandemic and we pivoted and put it online quickly and um, we're hoping that people would be able to watch it alone and to identify with the crisis and the character. You know, the goal is to really communicate and speak with audiences with what we do and if that can't be in a theater, you know, then it has to be at home and you know, at a certain point, we have to embrace that we're living in the 21st century. And if this is the way we watch movies now, this is the way we watch movies. Yeah. Garrett, um, what happened in the interim um, in terms of the racial justice movement and the aftermath of the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey and so many others, and just this raising of critical awareness around especially the criminal justice system as it relates to the Black community for your film to launch this fall and have that kind of new upswell of at least awareness. I don't know, your your thoughts on that, that arc of this year. Yeah, man. I mean, I think, gosh, the arc of the year, it just feels like it's just been up just like at the highest yeah. <laughs> part the whole time, the precedence the whole time. The way in which I've been kind of addressing that question has been to remind people, of course, that this film, unfortunately, is not particularly relevant just because it's 2020, that 
you know, since the advent of the new world, capitalism and the enslavement of people have been intrinsically connected to each other. And so nothing actually has changed. Again, it's just sort of a revealing of these things. And I think a lot of that has to do, for better or for worse, I'm going to say for for the better, with white allyship and unprecedented amounts of white allyship that we're seeing, particularly around the protest during the summer, and which I think lead to this, again, this question of optics, this question of visibility, the fact that technology is forcing people to be held accountable in a way that you know, has been used in the past time and time again, but is at sort of a, a, a new peak. And I think that what has been more profound for me is, again, to think about the absence of the image as it relates to incarceration. And that when we think about 2.3 million people that are incarcerated, the statistics, the numbers, the facts, quote unquote, actually become abstract. Um, And so I think that what's been really interesting in building a dialogue is that a lot of the questions that I think, and Liza, I'm curious how you feel about this, but the questions you get when it, when you release a film are so great because regardless of what they are, they are a reflection of the time. They're a reflection of how people are thinking and feeling. And I think a big question we've gotten is, well, why aren't you so focused on the facts? Why is this film completely leaning into this idea of love and this idea of unity? And I think that this film stands on the shoulders of films like 13th, which really do break down legislation and break down history in this current moment in a place that is specific um, and statistical. But I think that, that in order for us to also continue to see, we have to also show the effects of the facts. You know, we have to show the family. So I think this year, again, is just, you know, I can't say it enough. It's been so much about revealing and about understanding visibility and trying to create as many different entry points to the same issues in ways that are unordinary, maybe that are human. Yeah. Eliza, you Garrett, you know, reference your film and I, I obviously, even though one's a narrative, one's a documentary, they both kind of have fulfilled this right now. Yeah. I, I think what Garrett said was also important for me. I immersed myself in a lot of research for the film. You know, I went to different abortion clinics in New York. I talked to providers. I talked to counselors. I was swimming in a certain kind of research and information. But what I really wanted to represent on screen was the effect these real barriers have on a human being and to approach this subjectively and not didactically really was of the greatest importance to the type of film that I was making. And I think that if you can demonstrate the impact, you know, of the issues on human lives, you know, then you can find ways to get past audiences defenses or bias regarding these important topics. Absolutely. I'm wondering, was there a moment in the filming where you were like, okay, this is just, it's too much. I I can't do, I can't move forward right now. Or conversely, you were so in the moment and it just lit your fire and you're like, all right, we're in this, we're going. I don't know. It's hard to think back on, like, I feel a tremendous amount of pressure when I'm shooting a film that I feel like I'm a person running a city and what did I do to deserve this opportunity? There's a lot of fear of failure for me in making work and that's not something that goes away when I'm standing on set. You know, I'd say like the most humbling part of 
making the film was being granted permission by Planned Parenthood to shoot in real clinics as I had written them on the page. And that was tremendously humbling to be in those spaces, you know, in operating rooms, in real offices, going through these very real processes, which was important to me for the kind of dramatic and emotional credibility of the narrative. And, and actually shooting with real providers, right? You, you actually cast real health care providers in some of those roles. In the pivotal scene of the film, which is a scene between this 17-year-old character, Autumn, and a social worker, I ended up casting a real social worker who I'd consulted with on the script. Like, every time I hit a wall writing, I would call Kelly. Kelly Chapman is her name. And I'd say, you know, what do you think of this? Or what do you think of that? And her voice was so in my head on the page that when we started casting, I really couldn't imagine anyone else. And everybody was suggesting, like, really big-name actors because they wanted the scene to be, like, really important and really special. And I just... I knew that in order to get the performance that we needed for the film, that she, Sydney Flanagan, who plays Autumn, needed to be in a really safe space and go through as close to the real version of this intake process as possible. Yeah. And Garrett, I mean, you you may have um, your own scene that you would point to, but I, I would just say overall, I mean, the idea that you would shoot a documentary and then discover a whole cache of personally shot home video to then decide to go back and re-edit your film to incorporate Ms. Fox's personal home movies into your own project at a late stage in the film, if I'm not wrong, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was so I was so adamant that we had made a 13-minute short film. Fox is actually briefly in a short film I made called Alone, which was a 13-minute op doc. And I, so I met Fox in the process of making that film. And when I finished making Alone, you know, the whole impetus for me was thinking about how I can continue to speak about incarceration, to make films about incarceration from this sort of familial point of view, from a Black feminist Southern point of view. And I also wanted to show the sort of diversification that existed within the experience of what it means to be an incarcerated family, that one woman, her experience and the way she navigates the system can't stand for everybody. And so I liked the idea that Fox was also an incredibly different woman, an older woman also whose partner had you know, Rob had been incarcerated, I think, 18 years when we had met. And so my focus for what I was shooting every day was very much about how do I illustrate the fact that the system unequivocally embeds itself into everyday life, that there was no moment in Fox's life or in the family's life in which they could separate this reality. I remember that evening, you know, when I thought we had wrapped and, you know, when you're making a documentary, you don't you don't really have the privilege, nor do I think it would really be ethical to have the vision for an ending, right? right. You just, yeah. the ending happens when the funding stops, when you have a deadline. <laughs> um, and the only thing that's really harnessing you is your intention. Why am I making this? And that intention for me always has to be connected to why the people I'm working with want to make this, right? And so my translating Fox's response of my story is the story of 2.3 million other American families, my way of translating that into a visual space was to focus on her work and her daily life, her, her routine, her ritual. 
And so, you know, when we thought that night was the last night and I said, okay, I'll be back in a few months and I'll show you what I have. And she handed me a bag of what turned out to be a hundred hours worth of her own personal home archive that was in color that had just a completely different texture, vibe, tone, energy to everything I had sort of been building from an aesthetic and, and even temporal standpoint. There were so many different Rubik's cubes and ways in which we needed to navigate the sort of the weaving of these two, not only time, but also the form of them, you know, the form of these two different mediums. And I think that on one hand, I was really obsessed with some of these cosmic moments that could not be explained, like Fox putting the camera in exactly the same place that I had put my camera some 19 years later, right? Just the framing, like there's there things you couldn't have anticipated, but then how do you weave these two things from an emotional standpoint, from a narrative standpoint? And I think Gabe Rhodes, the film's editor and I, Ultimately, what we decided was that love, love surpasses all time and space. Love is the thing that I think the family feels most connected to in terms of how they want to be reflected and see themselves. And if we decided to just completely lean into that, it actually served a very practical purpose, which is that we are then not bound by any chronology. We're not bound by linearity because love is not bound by linearity or chronology. So we could go forward with the film, but also go backwards all at the same time. It's, I mean, it's literally a breathtaking um, story <laughs> of, of creating art. I mean, it's just really inspiring. I want to acknowledge you both as innovators, most importantly, because you're artists who are not afraid of rejecting, subverting and upending convention, you know, as you you both have just described in a way. One, you know, convention that I see upended in both your films is grounding the narrative in often in very deep sadness. You know, you're, you're very honest about that in both of these projects. I like that observation. And I think that that underlying sadness is something that is very palpable on screen in my films. It's a, it's a little bit of me in all those characters, I would say. <laughs> um, uh, I think that there's something exciting in taking on topics that people think are unproducible as fiction films or undesirable or unachievable. With this film, a lot of people asked me or made the observation, you know, that it sounds more like an interesting documentary. Why can't fiction films at their core be about the impact of these deep issues on a human being? Well, sadness is a whole other thing that I feel like I think a lot about because it's almost like it's all the colors in one. It's like black, you know what I mean? Um, it's all the feelings in one. It's, it's beautiful in that sense, you know? But I think just addressing sort of this question around form, you know, I, similar to Eliza, I mean, when I was growing up, and this is a very gendered experience, but it was very much about like the guys kind of teaming together and making films and girls or women didn't really, we were kind of our own islands. Like we kind of were just like doing our own thing, you know? And so I was figuring out a visual language in a, in somewhat of a space of solitude, you know? And filmmaking is so much about collaboration. It's so much about working with people. And I went to film school to really learn how to do that and to really learn the, the tradition of, of traditional filmmaking. And I And when I was there, I really struggled with trying to 
fit into the template, but I'm really thankful for that because I think it helped me understand who I am. And I think anyone who's in any kind of graduate program or formal program around making things, the moment they start to feel frustrated is actually, that's a blessing. That's the moment where then you're finding yourself to a certain extent, you know? So, so really, I guess what I'm, what I'm making, I, I'm making it the only way I know how I'm actually not interested in or really even able to consciously go against the grain. I'm really just expressing myself the only way that I think I'm able to express myself. I do want to um, talk about what's happening now um, beyond these projects and and Garrett specifically, at MoMA on view will be your amazing Project America, which will come in the form of an installation in a gallery, in real life, in person. It's organized by Studio Museum in Harlem, uh, presented again here at MoMA on 53rd Street. And this is an iteration of the project we mentioned at the beginning of this chat. Uh, America grew out of an amazing insight you had, inspired in part by Limekiln. Do you want to talk a little bit about that project and what it is? Yeah, sure. Thank you for that. I mean, I, I'll just mention briefly that I came across the project because I was reading the newspaper and I found that the museum, that MoMA had discovered Limekin Club Field Day as a series of unassembled outtakes, uh, that it was starring Burt Williams, who was making more money than the president at the time in 1913. And it's what they think to be the very first feature length film with an all black cast and integrated production team. And there were th- and there, there was something there's something really important about that also, and it does also connect to this current moment, which is that it was just several years after Plessy versus Ferguson, mm. which happened in 1896, and 1896 was also the year the modern day projector was invented. Uh-huh. So for the first time ever, you had the beginnings of Jim Crow. You had people being separated racially, but you also had the first time people were coming together technically with film. And so the fact that you had black and white people working together in support of a black singular vision uh, in Burt's vision in 1913 was really significant. And so at the bottom of that article, there was a link that the Library of Congress had had done a survey that said that 70% of the films made between 1912 and 1929 were missing. And so America, the project that I had made was looking at Limekin and saying, okay, there's this whole breadth of work that's missing. MoMA has found this one film that's incredibly progressive in terms of its cinematically, creatively, socially, politically. How can I evoke the same spirit of that work and think about other moments in time that have also been lesser known and bring them together, you know? And so it's a series, it's really a sort of a, a visual chronology between 1915 and 1926. And sometimes it's abstract and sometimes it's um, more straightforward, but it's really trying to grapple with the archive and to show what I knew was there, but that is maybe less discernible in 17 frames a second, right? Which I should just mention too, is that, you know, Burt Williams, when I, when I was working on the project, Obama was president. And then when the <laughs> film came out, Trump had become president. And so it was all the more important for me to prove what I knew, which was that performance on behalf of Bird and behalf of just the way in which that film was even able to get made at that year. Performance is thought about as both resistance and oppression all at once, right? And I think that those themes also run true with time. When we think about parole board hearings, when we think about black exceptionalism, when we think about the presentation of ourselves over the course of time 
and our, our, our fight to maintain our sense of individuality within our work, within our fight for justice. It's all very much connected. Anyway, so this is the first time it'll be presented in a physical space in a way that people can actually move through history and move through time and hopefully see connections that are completely intrinsic to their own height and their own curiosity and how they move through space. Um, to have it be cross-institutional also speaks to this idea of collaboration, you know, and um, yeah, yeah, I'm excited. Well, yeah, no, I mean, it's it's totally a dream. And again, I encourage everybody to come down and see it. Eliza, other than doing the hardest work I can possibly imagine, which is parenting during COVID. <laughs> what are you on to these days? Uh, I am mid-semester at Pratt Institute, and at the moment I'm mentoring 24 seniors who are about to head into production and begin their senior thesis projects. So my work you know, as a professor and academic at the moment has taken center stage, I would say, to developing another project. But in January, I will begin to go back to work. Uh, and I have this semester off and we'll begin to work on uh, a new feature script and a television series that I have in the works and all kinds of good things. Well, God bless. And I'm so grateful to both of you again for making these incredible films, for sharing them with us and for talking to me here on this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Stay safe. talking to you both. <laughs> Be safe. Thank you for listening to Chanel Connects. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app to get new episodes as soon as they're released. <laughs>